0: Welcome to another week here on the From the Booth podcast. My name is Cody Clark. His name is Evan Eishan Evan, how are you this morning, my friend?
1: Uh, it is it is a Friday morning. Uh, things, are, things are good. We had an exciting Thursday night game, and we are officially one month into the NBA season. So we'll, we'll see how the NBA is shaping up after one month.
0: Yeah, indeed. Lots to unpack. Let's start with that Texans-Colts game last night. And... You know, wasn't wasn't pretty at times for the Texans early on, but both teams scored ten points in the second quarter. That game was ten ten at the half, and then Evan the the second half was really all about Deshaun Watson and the Texans being able to bust a couple of big plays, especially late, some long passes to Will Fuller setting up a, a couple of touchdowns uh, for Houston, particularly that one in the fourth quarter. That gave them a lead that they uh, that they would not relinquish to Indianapolis.
1: And it was a game that Houston really needed to win because Indiana because Indy was sitting at six and four with the Houston Texans, and because they had won the earlier matchup, you know they had the tiebreak. But there's one thing that I wanted to talk about at that game is that at the end of that game, Frank Reich and the Colts had really run the ball for a good chunk of the game, but The clock management at the end of that, including burning the timeout before the fourth down, really kind of killed them at the end there when Houston was able to just run the ball, was able to just run the clock out at the end of the game.
0: Evan, yeah, that was something that was interesting for me because, you know, they had the Naeem Hines rush for three yards on second down, and if you're going for it on fourth down anyway, the way they'd run the football – they threw an incomplete pass on third down, and then Brissett scrambled up the middle for six yards. I might have run the ball on that third down and seven, and maybe set yourself up a fourth down and short. Because then, if Brissett is able to scramble there, he's much more likely coming off that that uh, knee injury, that meniscus injury. The you know he's much more likely to be able to pick up a couple of yards rather than scrambling for to try and pick up seven if the play breaks down. So with the way they'd been running the football, I would have liked to have seen one more run because, you know, going for it on fourth down there, that's a decision you probably go with and probably make at the beginning of the drive. So I just didn't love – I didn't mind the fourth down going for it at that point. I liked that call. I just would have probably run the ball one more time on third down, and you might have given yourself a little bit shorter of a fourth down.
1: Well, if you're – If you were going to run, you would think that you would do it before it became fourth and seven where Brissett couldn't find anybody open and then he had to scramble and he got six and a half yards. But then there was the fumble that on the Houston Texans drive that you could make the argument should have been reviewed. But even if they reviewed it, I don't think there was a clear recovery by Darius Leonard at the end of that game. So Houston might've just gotten the ball back. So it wound up being a moot point. But since you are our resident Indianapolis Colts guy, who is this Jonathan Williams dude? (laughs) Like this guy can play Marlon Mack is going to miss at least the next few games with his hand injury. And then they get this guy named Jonathan Williams and he looked like a stud. Who is this guy?
0: He He's out of Arkansas. Uh, he was drafted in 2016. I believe he was a fifth-round pick. I want to say, as I try to pull this up here, I want to say he was in Buffalo uh, originally drafted, but uh, he was originally drafted by the Bills. Uh, he's with the Colts now. He's, he's a 6-foot, 217-pound running back out of Arkansas. Uh, and... and it, Evan, you saw him come in uh, last week, so when Mack goes out, Williams comes in, and this is now two straight games for Williams over 100 yards because he went over 100 uh, coming in in relief of Mack against the Jaguars in that game when Indy ran the ball very well. This is a team with a great offensive line, and we've seen – Pretty much anyone they throw back there be able to have success. Whether it's Mac, whether it's Williams, uh, whether it's Wilkins or Hines, you know they have this complement, this this complementary group of running backs that you know nobody likes, nobody really scares you. Nobody really, you know, you're thinking, oh my gosh, you know, we have to stop this guy or we're going to lose the game. But all of a sudden, Williams bursts onto the scene and he goes for. Uh, 116 yards last week against Jacksonville, 13 carries. He gets 26 carries on a Thursday night short turnaround against Houston, also catches three passes, scores his uh, first touchdown. So, you know, this another opportunity, the Colts showing off, Chris Ballard showing off, guys being able to step up. And, you know, the quintessential example of that is said quarterback. You had Andrew Luck retire. And you've had Jacoby Brissett step up and play pretty well for this Colts team. So Williams is just one of those latest guys that you're not really sure where he came from. You don't remember him, but the fifth round pick that the the fifth round pick out of Arkansas really getting it done the last couple of games for the Colts.
1: And I and I like that game plan when you've got Quentin Nelson and Ryan Kelly up front. Why not run the football?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, why I mean, not? You have one of the one of the top five or six offensive lines uh, in the entire NFL. You've got a team that's really, really successful at running the ball. Uh, Costanzo up front, uh, Ryan Kelly up front, Quentin Nelson up front. Quentin Nelson is – he's really, really fun to watch because he is nasty up in the trenches. But, uh, but yeah, you know, it's a really, really solid offensive line. You have Jacoby Brissett who's able to make every throw, and so you've got this complementary group of running backs in the backfield, and Williams just the latest guy to, to kind of take off in this system. And – the Colts falling in that game. So as Evan mentioned, now Houston goes to seven and four, and they showed a graphic of the playoff chances. Evan, when you, uh, you know, six and five versus seven and four. I think at seven and four, it was like sixty-eight percent of the time you make the playoffs, uh, or maybe sixty-five percent of the time. And if you're six and five, uh, you only make it, I think, forty-nine percent of the time. But Houston now with the one game lead in the division, uh, the Texans and the Colts are both three and one in division play. So long way to go here, Evan, but you know these two teams really kind of proving that they are the the class of the AFC South, I guess fighting for that top spot, Tennessee at five and five, Jacksonville at four and six. You know as we see every year, this division is just kind of jumbled up. Uh, but Houston with a really, really big win, especially when you look at the playoff standings because that kind of vaults them up the list. Uh, If it ended today, Houston would get the three over Kansas City uh, based on the head-to-head win percentage, so a really, really big game for Houston. A big performance by, um, by Will Fuller, by Deshaun Watson, and the Baltimore Ravens by Hopkins as well, and the – excuse me, I said the Ravens – and the uh, Houston Texans, rather, getting a big, big win that they very, very much needed in that AFC South race.
1: And not just Houston getting the three seed. That knocked the Colts out of the playoffs, and the Oakland Raiders would get the number six seed. They are 6-4 and right now, and they get the New York Jets on Sunday – so if they win that game like most people reasonably expect them to, now they're 7 and 4 and depending on what happens with Buffalo and Denver, they could jump all the way up to the number 5 seed. So the Ra- the Raiders sitting at 6 and 4, which I don't think anybody saw that one coming, they're sitting in the playoffs right now.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, from the NFC side of things, there is a lot of movement could happen in the NFC because right now everyone in the NFC playoff picture has at least 8 wins except the Dallas Cowboys. So there's a lot of variance here. At 8 and 3, the Vikings are the number 6 seed at 8 and 3. They would be getting a first round bye if they were in the AFC. Meanwhile, the 49ers sitting at 9 and 2 wait, 9-1, excuse me, if they lose to Green Bay Sunday night and Seattle beats Philly, the 49ers go all the way from home <laughs> field in the NFC all the way down to the number 5 seed. So there is no margin for error in that NFC playoff race.
0: No, there really isn't, and we were talking about it last week. You have San Francisco at 1-9-1. and one. Green Bay at 8-2, and two. they are number two. Those are your top two seeds, and they will play each other, as Evan alluded to. The Saints are 8-2. and two. Dallas is 6-4. and four. They're in that four spot, uh, being on top of the division with a one-game lead over the Philadelphia Eagles. Then you have the Seahawks at five, Vikings at six. You know, Evan, we said it, it you know, it it looks pretty much wrapped up. I mean, you hate to say that, but when you look at how these teams have played, it's I think it's pretty safe to say that you've got most of those teams will probably be in it, barring a massive collapse. And basically, it's the Cowboys and the Eagles fighting to get in because they're going to fight each other in the division race. And so you've got the Cowboys at six and four, you have the Eagles at five and five. And, you know, between these two teams, Evan, the the Dallas Cowboys are a team I can I just cannot figure out. They are they are at New England uh, this weekend, uh, the four o'clock game this weekend, which is a a big big contest for really both of those teams, but more importantly for Dallas. Evan, they have they have Dak Prescott, Ezekiel Elliott, Amari Cooper, uh, a really really talented young defense, and yet they just really haven't been able to put it all together. They had a blowout win of the Giants, a blowout win in the Eagles. You know, they struggled with the Lions. Uh, They lost a tight one to the Vikings. They lost to the Packers in a game that they really got stomped. Uh, You know, the final score not really indicative of how that went. You know, they had the three easy wins against the Giants, Redskins, and Dolphins early in the year, and we kind of thought, oh, boy, here are the Cowboys. But it just hasn't panned out that way the rest of the season uh, as it's played out so far.
1: Dak Prescott actually leads the NFL in passing yards, if you can believe that. He's doing for over 3,200 yards, 21 touchdowns, nine interceptions. So Dallas is sitting there at six and four. So if there's an NFL team that has somewhat margin for error, it's Dallas because they are locked into the four spot because they're two games out of the wild card. So, you know, there's no fighting for the six seed if you're a Cowboys fan, you're just kind of locked into that number four spot. But is it a Jason Garrett thing of why they haven't been able to figure it out? I I can't remember who said it, but there was a guy who said that this, I can't remember who said it, and hopefully you might, where they talked about this Dallas Cowboys team feels a lot like the Golden State Warriors with Mark Jackson, and they need to find their Steve Kerr. But assuming that Jason Garrett isn't retained going into 2020 that has to be like the most desirous coaching opening isn't it because hey I get to coach Dak Prescott everybody would jump at the chance to coach Dak Prescott
0: yeah I mean I agree you take over an offense with those weapons the only thing that would that would hold it back for me is is Jerry Jones I mean if I'm taking over the job you know Jerry can be in the media and, you know, he can do all his stuff. But, you know, a lot of these owners, like, you know, you have to just, you know, like, hey, Jerry, stay out of it. Let me let me handle football here. Let me figure all this out. And, you know, I think they would make a run at a Lincoln Riley. I think they would make a run at some of those guys. I don't know if Lincoln would leave Oklahoma. Uh, He might for the Dallas Cowboys job. But it is going to be interesting because, you know, that that may be it. Maybe it's time for a change at head coach because, you know, this Cowboys team has all the weapons. You know, they've got one of the top running backs in the league. They have one of the top wide receivers. Yes, they need a little bit more depth at wide receiver, but you look at the the young defensive pieces they have and Jalen Smith and Van Der Esch, and it, it's just hard to figure them out. I mean, you had them come out barnstormers uh, to start the year. Uh, And everybody, oh, you know, look at the Dallas Cowboys. They hadn't really played anybody. They've fallen back to earth since then. And, Evan, they have a tough stretch coming up. You have the Patriots. uh, They're in New England. They host the Bills. Then they go to the Bears. Uh, Bears aren't playing as well, but you go to Chicago, that's a tough game. Then they have the Rams and the Eagles before they have the Redskins. And you look at it and they have a tougher way than the than the eagles do the rest of the way. Philadelphia has a really tough game this weekend against Seattle, but then it's Miami, the Giants, the Redskins, the Cowboys and the Giants. So the Cowboys are up a game on Philadelphia, but you'd have to think if you're just looking on paper, Philly has the advantage with the schedule. Uh, so far. So a really big game this weekend for Philadelphia against Seattle, and a really big game this weekend for the Cowboys against New England, games that both of those teams really need to win.
1: And looking at the schedule, I don't know if either of them is going to win. I mean, Russell Wilson, depending on what you think about Lamar Jackson, is either number one or number two in the MVP race. And New England has been able to stop everyone except Lamar Jackson, who at this point just seems like the most unfair thing in the NFL. But if we play this out and let's say that they both lose this weekend, which is a real possibility, I like what I've seen more from the Dallas Cowboys than I've seen from the Philadelphia Eagles just from how this season has gone. So, if I had to pick between one of those two to win the n f c east i'm even though I picked Philadelphia to go to the Super Bowl uh I'm just gonna have to take the l on that one and just say that the Cowboys are going to win that division
0: i'm I'm right there with you dude i I just have to just have to take the loss there, swallow the pride. It just hasn't worked out for philly uh you know I just coming into the season, i thought they were you know you look at it and they have depth at most every position. You have Carson Wentz. You know, the, the pass defense hasn't been very good this year, and, and Philly has struggled to put it all together. But a big weekend uh, in the NFL. We talked about a couple of those, Philly versus Seattle, Dallas at New England, uh, the, Saints are Car- uh, the Saints and Carolina tangle, and obviously you have the Packers and the 49ers. So a host of big games, Cowboys and Eagles really hotly contested in that NFC East, to try and figure out who's going to come up, come out on top there. And Evan, you were mentioning the MVP race. Let's touch on that real quick. Do you have Lamar Jackson or Russell Wilson or maybe somebody else who has that top spot for you so far this season?
1: Uh, I'm gonna take Lamar Jackson, and that's mostly because I'm not interested in fighting Mark Ingram. <laughs> like uh, I, I, I don't, I don't want that smoke, as uh, as the people say. Uh, he is a video game character at this point. Uh, like, Lamar Jackson is the most unstoppable thing in the NFL. And I know that the MVP is borderline unwinnable if you aren't a quarterback. But if there was one year for a guy not being – if there was a year for someone not a quarterback to win it, Michael Thomas, who I am convinced his hands are made of stick'em, is making a tremendous case. We're 10 games into the season. He has 94 catches. He he ha- he is the first player in NFL history to have 90 or more catches in each of his first four seasons. It's wild. Okay, th- here's this for perspective. Okay. He has 94 catches in 10 games. The entire Philadelphia Eagles receiving core has 93. The entire Baltimore Ravens receiving core has 74. Wow. He has more catches on his own than two entire receiving cores. The NFL record for catches in a season is Marvin Harrison had 143, and I believe 2002. He is on pace to break that. And, Cody, he has a 83% Catch rate, eighty-three percent. He's averaging one hundred and fourteen yards a game. I know that if you're not a quarterback, like it's borderline unwinnable. But why why aren't people talking more about Michael Thomas? Like this guy is this guy's insane.
0: No, that's fair. And he's going to if he keeps up his current pace, uh, just do a little quick math here. He's going to come close to that uh that 1900 yard season that Calvin Johnson had back in uh, back in 2012 it's going to be close to that he needs to keep up his current pace but yeah you mentioned it 94 catches 1141 yards he's averaging 114 yards per game five touchdowns uh, 12 a pop uh in terms of average 12.1 yards in 10 games played he has been the focal point of that offense you've had Alvin Kamara a little bit banged up this year. Latavius Murray has stepped in. But Michael Thomas has been the guy you can rely on on the outside. And believe me, as you mentioned, they have 94 catches on the season for Michael Thomas. DeAndre Hopkins is at 81. He's the next closest. Uh, that's 13 catches behind. That's you know two games worth of catches for a, for a lot of receivers. So he has had a fantastic year. He's in the conversation, but as you mentioned, really, really tough for, you know, it just seems for non-quarterbacks to win the award. I would have Lamar Jackson uh, in there as well, Uh, and and it's a really tight race for me between Russell Wilson and Lamar Jackson, but you look at what Lamar Jackson has done and his ability to throw the football and run the football, that dual threat, he has 2,200 yards passing, Uh, He has 19 touchdowns and 5 interceptions, so a a good rate there. He's completing 66% of his throws. And this is a guy who can run the football. This is a guy who ran for 152 yards against Cincinnati, 116 yards against Seattle. Uh, He's had games of uh, 80, 60, 60 before that. The way that Baltimore has played, the way that they have started this season uh, out 8-2 and the nearly unstoppable rushing attack uh, and throwing attack that Lamar Jackson has brought to this Baltimore Ravens team, I see them being able to keep up this pace, Evan, and, and that for me would probably cement it for Lamar Jackson, although I think Russell Wilson is right there, and then you know Christian McCaffrey and Michael Thomas are probably your other two guys in that conversation.
1: Well, Lamar Jackson is on pace, I believe, to Crack a thousand yards rushing. Uh he would become the first quarterback to do that since Michael Vick, who was the only quarterback to do that. He's at seven hundred and eighty one rushing yards right now.
0: He's eleventh in the league in rushing. Only so quarterback on that list. He's well, not on, only, but
1: he's on pace to get over a thousand yards, which would be the second quarterback ever to do it. I think that if he gets the if he gets to 1000 yards rushing, I think that might just put it away for him to win the MVP, but he's got a couple of big games coming up. He's got on Monday night November 25th, which by the way happy birthday to me, I get to watch the the Ravens and the Rams for the Monday night game. And then next Sunday afternoon he gets Nick Bosa and the 49ers. Oh, there you go. That's um, that's going to be probably a bigger test than going against the Rams because this is a 49ers offense that has made every quarterback they've played look foolish except Kyler Murray and Russell Wilson. And if you want to get into the mobile quarterbacks that are really hard to, to tackle, Lamar Jackson certainly fits into that mold, and those are the kinds of quarterbacks that have given the 49ers fits, and they've been able to make everyone else look stupid by comparison.
0: Yeah, no, that's a good point. You look at it with the Ravens, they're 8-2, and two. they're top the AFC North right now. As you mentioned, they're at the Rams on Monday night. Then they have the 49ers at the Bills, the Jets at the Browns, and the Steelers. So the next three games, the Rams trying to stay alive in the uh, N- NFC playoff race, but the 49ers a playoff team, the Bills a playoff team right now. Cleveland could play their way into a wild card spot, in the AFC we will have to see there. So a tough a tough slate remaining, but yeah, just for me, Evan, it'd be hard to not, ha- not pick Lamar Jackson, especially because, as you mentioned, he's probably going to go over 1,000 yards rushing. He's gonna be definitely over, uh, three thousand yards passing. You know, maybe maybe in the maybe in the thirty five hundred potentially more uh, neighborhood there with you know twenty some odd touchdowns. Just it, it, for me, it'd be really really difficult not to pick Lamar Jackson for what he's done. And you look at the numbers that he's put up, and then you look at where they stand, and and he's not doing this all for naught. I mean, the Ravens are the uh, second overall seed in the AFC playoff picture. New England at nine and one, and Baltimore at eight and two. And Baltimore beat New England head to head. So it would be Lamar Jackson for me. Uh, tough to pick against him at this point.
1: It's almost impossible to pick against him. And uh, as uh, Mark Ingram said, if you if you uh, have somebody else come see him, he's right behind the bank. Yeah, no thanks. And uh, yeah, I don't I don't want those problems. So we're going to look at this week 12 slate. Some of the other games that we have going on right now for Sunday and Monday, we get, we, we touched on Seattle going into Philadelphia to play the Eagles. The suddenly red hot Falcons are at home against the, against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. We have the Allen bowl in Buffalo, Josh <laughs> Allen versus Brandon Allen and a game that, on paper doesn't mean a whole lot unless uh, you are following the either the Burrow Bowl or Tank for The Cincinnati, the still winless Cincinnati Bengals are hosting Mason Rudolph and the Pittsburgh Steelers. Cody, is there any way that cincinnati wins a game this year because this this team this season feels like Owen and 16 written all over it
0: it has Owen and 16 written all over it for me uh you know the steelers have really really struggled on offense but defensively uh i definitely see them holding down uh, joe mixon and finley and company they have the steelers the jets the browns the patriots the dolphins the browns again do the Bengals. Your best chance would probably be Miami, second-to-last game of the year. And yet, you know, you look at it, and Miami has has played much better as of late, and they've been able to get a couple of wins. People were saying that team was going to go o for, uh, for the season. So 0-10 right now, last in the AFC North. I, I don't see it going up from here for the Cincinnati Bengals. Uh, maybe they get one of these games but definitely going to be the uh, number one pick. And the way it's played out right now, nothing they've done lends me to believe that they would be able to win a game. Like I said, in Miami maybe their best chance, uh, but I don't see it coming this weekend against the Steelers. They got the Browns in twice. Uh, they have the Patriots. Don't see it happening there. So, you know, that that Miami game, Second to last game of the season with Miami, maybe still sitting on a couple of wins. You know, you have your you have your your tank for Tua or whoever you're going to draft bowl there. Uh, that might be that might be one to watch in terms of the uh, tanking. But no, I, I I don't see one on the uh, slate this year for the Bengals.
1: By the way, the Cincinnati Bengals already mathematically eliminated from playoff contention before Thanksgiving. There we go. So so we'll move on. Story that I can't wrap my head around maybe you can explain this to me because i'm i am lost so the last time we talked uh james wiseman who was a who was the star player for the memphis tigers basketball team and likely top if he's not the number one overall pick he's easily a top three pick in the 2020 nba draft uh it was announced that he was declared ineligible but We now know that he's going to be back in January of next year, so he's going to catch up on the bulk of conference play. So he has to sit an additional 10 games. And the part that raised everybody's eyebrows is the NCAA has told him that he must donate $11,500 to a charity of his choosing, which leads me to ask this question, Cody. Did the NCAA just fine James Wiseman? It
0: sure as heck looks like it, doesn't it? You mentioned it. He will be out till January. They announced they suspended him for 12 total games. Uh, He had already sat for one of those, I believe, so it was 11 more for Memphis. But, yeah, the NCAA also practically fined Wiseman $11,500. You know, Evan, it it is. I mean, it's a a fine. I mean, you know— they, he must donate it to chari- to a charity of his choice. You know that's all well and good, but basically the NCAA just fined Wiseman because they're you know they're they're having him you know they're saying he needs to donate that to to repay the loan. You know essentially repay for the loan that Penny Hardaway gave his family to relocate to Tennessee when he was in high school. This has been a long drawn out process. Uh, for James Wiseman, for Memphis. You know, Memphis and Weisman have been, you know, kind of pushing back pretty much every step of the way. And, you know, if you finally had Weisman go, okay, you know, we're going to – we'll submit to the NCAA. We'll see how many games they sit out, and, and we'll kind of go from there. Uh, he's played just three games. He's averaging uh, almost 20 and 11. It's 19.7 and 10.7. But, yeah, Evan, this is – I mean – This is something that, and you've seen it play out on the internet and with people talking about it, the NCAA continues to take heat, uh, especially surrounding this situation. You've got a kid who is not making money playing college basketball and whose family needed the loan from Penny Hardaway to relocate to Tennessee in the first place for Wiseman to play in high school why in the world would he have $11,500 sitting around to donate to a charity of his choice? It's all well and good that it's a donation, but it's basically a fine. Like, really? Seriously, NCAA? Come on. Well,
1: and, like, this wasn't even—like, Wiseman himself didn't take any— this was a transaction from when he was a minor between Penny Hardaway and his mom. Right. Like, he had nothing to do with it. Uh, but the, uh, the NCAA, uh, continues to look bad. This just kind of seems like a thing that the NCAA just said, oh yeah. And we're going to do this as like an extra screw you because you, you tried to fight us on this and how dare you. Um, everyone is talking about it, including one of the democratic nominees for president, Andrew Yang took some time to bash the NCAA for it. Uh, Jay Williams, ESPN analyst and former college basketball star, has organized a GoFundMe to help pay back the $11,500 because, in his words, quote, since he has to pay back $11,500 and and he can't get that money from friends and family because that's another NCAA violation, why don't we, the public, do it? Um, I mean, that's a good idea because – I don't know how else
0: he's supposed to get it. Right. It's a good idea, but he can't take that money either. So this just kind of seems like a lose-lose
1: here because if he gets the $11,500 and the NCAA is going to come after him because, oh, where, where did you get that money? Oh, did you get that money from this? And then it just seems like they're trying to make an example out of Memphis of this is what happens when you challenge me sort of thing. That we're just going to make this situation so lopsided that you have to break the rules in order to fit within the parameters of the punishment. Right. Of just kind of like a last ditch effort of the NCAA to send a message and say, this is what happens when you mess with us, and let this be a lesson to everybody else that when we declare a player ineligible, then damn it, he's going to be ineligible. Or this is what's gonna happen to you.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, Wiseman's gonna be a top pick. He's gonna make a ton of money. None of that is none of that is the point. I mean, you're you you essentially find a college kid for something that that it was not a direct transaction between Penny and him. Now I totally understand it was with the mother and it benefited him and it benefited the family and, and I get all that. But Let's not kid ourselves and say this is the only instance of this happening. Let's not kid ourselves. NCAA, come on. I mean, you basically find the guy. He's not making money. He's not a professional athlete. Like, if he was in the NBA and he violated a rule, then I totally understand you get a fine. That's that's perfectly okay. But this is a college basketball player being told he now has to donate the the amount that he was, that his family had accepted. He's being asked to donate that amount to charity, which again, all well and good. Glad that, you know, it goes to a charity, but he didn't have the money in the first place. And this is an amateur athlete and you're asking an amateur athlete to donate $11,500 while he is not being paid for his services on the basketball court. It just doesn't make any sense.
1: And he can't. it's not like he can just wait until he's drafted to pay it back. The right. NCAA says that he, quote, must be completed prior to the student athlete's last regular season date of competition or contest. So it's not like he can just wait until he gets drafted and like, okay, cool, here's your charity donation. He has to do it while he's at Memphis. So I don't understand how the NCAA expects him to do this. Without breaking their rules, um, I, I just don't understand this. And this is, and like we said last week on the pod, it's stories like this that when the pay for play act was signed, but everyone was ready to dance on the grave of the NCAA, and it's because of stuff like this.
0: Yeah, no, it absolutely is, and these are those these are those instances that make us all roll our eyes, and everyone takes to Twitter and just absolutely slams the NCAA. Weissman is eligible to come back on the twelfth of January in a game against South Florida. Memphis is four and one on the season, I believe. So they have a very very good team, a very young team, but they obviously need Weissman uh, as a, a part of that if they want to make a run at an NCAA title this year. But, yeah, Evan, this situation just, you know, it's just something that, that just doesn't make sense to me. I mean, like I said, you have the NCAA comes in and asks uh, an amateur athlete to make an $11,000 donation to charity to make up for it, the the money that his family received. And, again, great that it goes to charity, not knocking that part. You know, I totally support that that part. It makes a lot of sense to me, but it doesn't make sense to f- – to basically, essentially, give an amateur athlete a fine. That's the part that just doesn't make sense to me.
1: And it's one of the things that I I don't know how this is going to work. It's definitely one of those situations that we're going to have to watch to figure out how this gets resolved or or if it gets resolved, because the NCAA doesn't have subpoena power. Like, they can ask you to do something, but they can't mandate you do the thing. So I'm trying to figure out how exactly this is going to work because the NCAA can, like, they can suggest you do a thing, but they can't force you to do it. So I'm trying to figure out how this is going to work. Um, Definitely a strange, strange situation. And we're, we're going to have to... We're going to have to see how this plays out.
0: Luckily for Memphis, a large portion of that is the non-conference slate. Uh, he has already sat a couple of games, so he has an additional 10 more. Memphis is appealing it. Uh, before that USF game on January 12th, they have uh, Wichita State, Georgia, Tulane, uh, New Orleans, Jackson State, uh, Tennessee, UAB, Ole Miss, NC State, so some tough games there, but luckily for Memphis, a lot of it is the non-conference portion, so they will have Wiseman back for the vast majority, uh, if not the entire majority uh, or or the entire slate of games in the American. So, you know, that part is good that he will be able to play uh, once conference play rolls around. He'll be able to play in the NCAA tournament, but just again, you know, just to confuse another another instance of a ruling that leaves everyone scratching their head at the NCAA.
1: And it's one of those situations that we're definitely going to have to see how this plays out because on the surface, it makes absolutely no sense. Uh, Moving on to the college football slate, the top six in the college football playoff rankings were unchanged. Were you surprised that there was no movement for the top six?
0: Uh, no, I was not surprised by that. I felt like the top teams pretty much proved themselves. I mean, you, you know, you had, um, you had LSU stay put, you have Ohio State, you had Clemson. I mean, for me, the games that occurred, you know, there was nothing really that was like, oh, my gosh, you know, we have to – we have to change this up. You, you you, still had LSU. You still had Ohio State. You still had Clemson. They didn't slip up. Uh, Georgia was able to uh, beat Auburn. Uh, you had you know, Alabama, Oregon right there. So, you know, no, not something that was surprising for me. Uh, Minnesota, you know, I thought they might fall farther, falling down. Uh, so, you know, it's something that... They're they're still technically in it because you know they can they can win a couple of these games late in the year and if they could get a Big Ten uh, championship win, then that would go a long way as well. So the committee kind of kept Minnesota still attached. Uh, I think Oklahoma what they moved up one spot with their win over Baylor. That was a wild game. Oklahoma goes to nine. Uh, Oregon at. Uh, Penn State at 8, Utah at 7, Oregon at 6, Bama's still at 5, but without Tua Tungavailoa, going to be very interested to see what the committee does with them and how the rest of the season plays out for Alabama. Uh, so no, Evan, not really surprised that the top six stayed unchanged. They all won their games, took care of business. That Tua injury for Alabama is something to watch because that is going to play a factor uh, into I think how they look at Alabama because if they have Tua and they only have one loss, as a one-loss team, you could make an argument to put them in the three or the four spot, in my opinion, although the strength of schedule isn't there. Clearly, I, you know, I think they're one of the top teams in the country, so that's an interesting debate if you have Tua healthy at quarterback, but now with the backup quarterback – even if they're able to run the slate the rest of the way, I don't see a chance where they can get in.
1: I mean, there is a somewhat of a precedent of this, where Ohio State, the year that they won the national championship, lost JT Barrett and Cardale Jones came in, saved the season, and won the uh, won the championship. I'm not saying that. I, I'm not saying that Mac Jones is. Cardale Jones. But there I'm just saying that a team has lost their starting quarterback and found a way to win the the playoff uh when Ohio State won it uh back in 2014. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, 2014. So, the top 6 are LSU state at 1, Ohio State 2, Clemson 3, Georgia 4, So those are the teams that are in right now. And then five through eight is Alabama, Oregon, Utah, Penn State. Oklahoma sitting at number nine. Oklahoma, through the first half, was getting smacked around by Baylor, and then they found a way to win the game, which uh, Baylor, interestingly, fell all the way down to 14. So Baylor fell a couple of spots. So it seems like the big 12 is going to have a lot of work to do to get back into the, the college football playoff discussion. It just seems like if the sec is going to have two teams that the most likely scenario where that doesn't happen is Oregon finds their way into the top four, but they would need uh, Georgia to slip up at some point between now and the final rankings.
0: Right, which I think is really highly possible because they're going to play LSU in the SEC title game. And so you have Georgia with uh, Texas A&M and with Georgia Tech the rest of the way, and then you're going to have the SEC championship game. So you could be looking at a two-loss Georgia. So, Evan, if you have a two-loss Georgia in the schedule that they've played, if Oregon is able to run, run the table from there, Oregon would still have a potential championship game against Utah on the schedule. Uh, The fact that I believe uh, the USC Trojans, are they back in the rankings? Did I see that correctly? Yes, they're 23rd. Uh, They're at 23rd. So uh, that win over USC, you know, looks a little bit better because they went to USC and did that uh, just a couple, just a few weeks ago. So, if you have a two-loss Georgia, let's say Georgia falls to LSU in the SEC title game, and you have a one-loss Oregon team that wins the Pac-12, for me, you'd be really hard-pressed not to pick that Oregon team.
1: The Oregon's last two games in the regular season, they to, they are on the road against Arizona State, and then they have the Civil War game against Oregon State, and more than likely the Pac-12 title game against Utah. So if Oregon wins all three, which most people expect them to beat Arizona State and Oregon State, especially Oregon State, because they have owned them over the last five to six years. Right. uh, It seems like if Georgia slips up in the SEC title game and assuming Alabama, I mean, I don't think Auburn's going to win. I mean, they might. If Auburn wins the Iron Bowl, then that takes Alabama out of this equation. But even if Alabama wins the Iron Bowl, it feels like that Oregon-Utah game is going to be a winner-goes-to-the-playoff, even though Utah, as it stands right now, has a less than 10% chance to get in sitting at number seven.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, I agree with that. I think that you'd be really hard-pressed. Now, the interesting thing is, you'd have let's say that plays out that way you would have a two loss georgia but georgia's schedule having beaten a a very good notre dame team having beaten a very good florida team and having beaten auburn you would have two losses but you have you would have played much tougher games so where does the committee hold those two teams do they give favor to the two loss Georgia team, I think a lot of it would depend on how they show in the SEC title game against LSU, or would they go with the Oregon team who has the Pac-12 title with a win over Utah, a win over USC, but really nothing outside of that because they lost the first game of the year to Auburn. So I think it's going to be interesting because you have Alabama at five, Oregon at six, Utah at seven. You know, Penn State, Oklahoma, not out of it, but they need a lot to happen. It's really shaping up to be a a three- or four-team race for what seems to be that last playoff spot, and uh, I'm here for it. It should be a a good close to the year.
1: And the big game of the weekend is at noon on Fox, Uh, number eight Penn State against Ohio State. Ohio State has won each game by at least three touchdowns. The closest anyone has come to beating them was when Michigan State lost 34 to 10 all the way back in October 5th. Does Ohio State continue their streak of winning each game by three touchdowns this week? Uh,
0: I don't think so. I think it's two touchdowns. I think they beat Penn State by a couple of scores. Uh, if they were at Penn State, maybe I would. Um, maybe I would think a little bit differently, but. I just I just see Ohio State continuing to roll. Justin Fields, J.K. Dobbins continuing to do what they do in that noon game and uh, taking care of business.
1: And then they have Michigan on November 30th, and uh, most of us expect them to beat Michigan like they have consistently done over the last six or seven years. I, I honestly can't remember the last time Michigan won against Ohio state. It's, it's been a long time.
0: That, um, that game that you mentioned, Evan, Ohio state, Penn state, the biggest game of the weekend at noon, you look at the rest of the slate and, you know, pretty much everyone else ranked teams are in action, but not really against, uh, major opponents. Minnesota is at Northwestern. Uh, you have, who else do you have? You have Iowa is hosting Illinois, um Boston College is at Notre Dame, uh, Michigan is at Indiana, maybe Indiana's played well, maybe a tough game there, Texas at Baylor uh could be an interesting one. But outside of, you know, that re- that noon game, there's there's not much else on the college football slate this weekend.
1: Not much else to look at. Uh hopefully the Ohio State Penn State game is going to be as good as advertised, otherwise it's going to be a long, brutal Saturday <laughs> for the people watching the games. So we are officially, Cody, one month into the NBA season. The NBA opened up on October 22nd, so here we are November 22nd, so some quick things. The Milwaukee Bucks are sitting at 12-3 and atop the Eastern Conference, the Lakers are 12-2 and atop the Western Conference. And all the way down at the bottom of the West at 3-13, and the Golden State Warriors, who just got smoked by Luka Doncic and the Dallas Mavericks, including Luka putting up that insane stat line, and I don't even think he played 30 minutes in that game. Um, what is your biggest surprise and disappointment after one month of the NBA season?
0: Uh, biggest surprise, Golden State. You know, you never think that the amount of injuries that they've had, uh, you know, is going to hit a team all at once. That's something that you you never really – I mean, you, you you know, you expect in an NBA season you're going to lose, you know, some guys at different parts of the way for different amounts of time. But the way they lost Klay Thompson at the end of last year, then Steph goes out, Draymond's been in and out, D'Angelo Russell's been out, you know, this – It's just the way that that's happened to them, definitely the most surprising for me because that's just never something you expect. Uh, Another surprise, uh, the Portland Trailblazers are off to a tough start at 5-11. I thought they would be a team that would be able to to mostly pick up where they left off last year. That's been a bit of a surprise. Uh, A team signing Carmelo Anthony, a little bit of a surprise for me, but he's getting back into the flow of things. Uh, he had a, a really nice night, uh, what was it, last night for Portland. Uh, he scores 18 in his second game with the Trailblazers. Uh, they lost to the Bucks, but uh, lost 137 to 129. Carmelo played well. He scored, uh, as I mentioned, he scored 18 points. Uh, he had seven rebounds, four assists. So Evan, a little surprised that uh, Carmelo has a job, but he seems to be uh, serviceable for the Trailblazers, and with all the injuries that they've had, that's absolutely something that Portland needs. Uh, a little bit of uh, let's look at the East real quick, couple of surprises there. For me, how quickly the Boston Celtics have gelled uh, out to an 11-3 start. They are a half game behind Milwaukee for the best record in the East. And, Evan, I thought Jimmy Butler would be a really nice addition for this Miami Heat team. I didn't see a ten and three start to the season, but they have gotten out to a really, really nice start in the East. Well, that—that
1: that was my surprise—is that they are sitting at ten and three, and it's not just Jimmy Butler. Bam Adebayo is getting his chance as a full-time starter since they shipped uh, Hassan Whiteside to Portland, and he is making the most of it. He's fourth on the team in assists, only behind uh, Butler, Winslow, and I believe. Drogic and Drogic has moved to the bench. He's a legitimate six man candidate and they're getting really great production out of an undrafted player named Kendrick Nunn, who I don't think a lot of people had him being a contributor on this team. It, it goes to show that when you have a coach like Eric Spolstra and you give him these pieces to work with, he can, he can cobble together a team that is 10 and three and it just shows that he is an incredible coach. Uh, the a surprise for me is James Harden is averaging almost forty points a game.
0: Yeah,
1: like this guy is becoming almost unguardable. He is. If this if if NBA Jam was real life, like
0: <laughs> the ball is,
1: the ball is consistently on fire when James Harden has the ball. Like I'm convinced that you could put. Seven guys on the court, and he'd still score thirty points.
0: Thirty-eight point four a night. Uh, the free throw numbers for James Harden are just staggering. I think it's more than fifteen trips to the line per game.
1: And he's shooting eighty-seven percent from the free throw line. I am convinced that when, if you play the Houston Rockets, and the NBA decided you're allowed to have seven guys on the court. <laughs> he could still score 30 points a game.
0: He might be able uh, to.
1: He is my favorite player to watch. He is he is like appointment TV for me. Oh, the, the Houston Rockets are on. James, Ro- James Harden's playing. I'm watching it. Like, well, they're playing they're playing like the Grizzlies. Oh, I don't care. I'm turning it on. By the way, the Grizzlies, John Morant is looking really good for that for that Memphis team.
0: Yeah, that's a nice draft pick and he has made a, a really nice transition into the NBA. Grizzlies are 5 and 9. Uh they're they're tied for the second worst record in the Western Conference, but you know, with Golden State at 3 wins and then it's Portland, San Antonio, Oklahoma City, Memphis all with 5. So everyone kind of jumbled up there her, here early in the season about a month in. Yeah, Evan, real quick back to Miami. You know, Jimmy Butler I think is like the perfect superstar player to fit with this roster because you you just have a roster of pieces that fit together nicely. You've gotten great production out of Kendrick Nunn. Drogic has settled into his sixth man role. Tyler Hero was a great draft pick. Bam Adebayo has taken the steps and is now getting the full-time starter minutes at center. Justice Winslow is a, a good defender and a guy who can play uh, a point forward position. You have Kelly Olynyk you have Myers Leonard, you have a a guy like Duncan Robinson, who, you know, we saw the other night score 29. He hit seven threes in the second quarter. Uh, And then they've been able to find like a Chris Silva, a guy out of South Carolina, uh, a forward that played for Frank Martin at South Carolina. And he's fit in nicely playing, uh, playing, you know, almost 10 minutes a game, uh, uh, backing up those guys in the front court for the heat. So all those pieces seem to fit together, and yeah, you mentioned it. Kendrick Nunn, second on the team in scoring, 17 points a game, uh, almost three rebounds, more than three assists. Uh, the 24-year-old out of Oakland, uh, not many people saw him coming, and he has been a real surprise in the NBA so far this season. Evan, as we wrap it up real quick, we we look at the Bucks on top of the East. We look at the Lakers on top of the Western Conference. I think the Lakers are a little bit of a surprise because I think we thought that the Lakers would be a really, really good team, but getting out to the start that they have gotten out to uh, with LeBron continuing to play a a large majority of minutes I think is a little bit surprising for people.
1: And he's leading the league in assists for the first time in his career. Like He's in his mid-30s. And right now, he's leading the league in assists. And, you know, he had all this stuff about, oh, people called me a washed king. Well, I'll show you washed. And he's come out and he's looked probably the best he's looked in a long time. You know, not going to the playoffs and not playing until June and adding the miles to his body has really helped to begin this year. Like uh you know, we're so used to seeing this guy play until June, but now that he had a full offseason to just sort of recover and get his legs under him, this looks to be a very scary Los Angeles Lakers team. And now the Anthony Davis is humming. Ooh, um they're gonna be they're gonna be a tough out come playoff time if the if everything looks the way it does right now.
0: They are indeed Anthony Davis twenty five a night, nine boards, LeBron James twenty five a night. Almost 8 rebounds, more than 11 assists per game for LeBron James as the Lakers sit atop the Western Conference. Evan, that's going to do it for us here on this week's episode of the From the Booth podcast. A lot of exciting stuff. A month into the NBA season, the NFL season is coming down the stretch. Uh, We'll have Thanksgiving football coming up. Uh, College football continues to push towards the college football playoff. Uh, if if you could only watch one thing this weekend, whether it be college, NFL, NBA, whatever it is, you can watch one game. What's the game you're watching?
1: Does Monday count?
0: Yes, Monday does count.
1: Uh, the Monday night because I I really haven't had a lot of time to see Lamar Jackson this year because we either don't get the games or the time we do get the game. Like it cuts away to send us to another game because we got the Houston game and then the and the CBS did the whole, yeah, we're going to show you a game that's a little bit more competitive. Right. It being a standalone Monday night game and on my 27th birthday, happy birthday to me, um, I if I had to choose one thing, I'm watching that LA Rams-Ravens Monday night game.
0: That's completely fair. That's a good one to watch. Yeah, I, I think I would lock into the 49ers and the Green Bay Packers Aaron Rodgers, Jimmy Garoppolo, two defenses there that are playing pretty well. Also, uh, if you you only made me watch one, I think that is one that uh, that's probably the one that I would go with. But uh, thanks everyone for tuning into this week's episode of the From the Booth podcast. We greatly appreciate it. Give us a follow on Twitter at From the Booth Pod. Uh, you can listen to us wherever you get your podcasts: Spotify, Apple Podcast, TuneIn, uh, iHeart, Stitcher. We're basically everywhere, so make sure you find us, subscribe, so you can get our episodes. If you are on Apple Podcast, make sure to give us a rating, uh, give us, uh, you know, leave us a comment, give us a five-star rating. That really helps us out. If you're using uh, Apple Podcasts, uh, some of you have already done that. We greatly appreciate that. Uh, just drop us a line, give us five stars, tell us you're, you're enjoying the show. Uh, we would be uh, forever grateful for that. But that's pretty much uh, checks my housekeeping boxes. For my co-host, Evan Eichen, I'm Cody Clark. Another week gone on the From the Booth podcast. Lots of exciting football to watch this weekend. We'll be back next week to break it all down right here on the From the Booth podcast.